You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And this is Miranda. And so this is Why We Do What We Do. And I want to start by telling a little story. Story time. That's right. So one day, a farmer's donkey fell down into a well. The animal cried piteously for hours as the farmer tried to figure out what to do. Finally, he decided that the animal was old, the well needed to be covered anyway, and it just wasn't really worth the effort to try and retrieve the donkey. Poor guy. So, the farmer invited his neighbors to come over and help him fill in the hole. They all grabbed a shovel and began shoveling dirt into the well. At first, the donkey realized what was happening and cried horribly. He's like, no, don't bury me in here. Then, to everyone's amazement, he sort of just quieted down. And after a few shovel loads later, they looked down into the well and they were astonished to find that with every shovel of dirt that was falling on the donkey, he would just shake it off and then he would take a step up on the new dirt that was there. So essentially, he was sort of walking his way out of the well as it would fill up with dirt. And so as the farmer's neighbors continued to shovel dirt on top of the animal, again, he'd just shake it off and step on the new dirt. And pretty soon, Everyone was amazed as the donkey stepped up over the edge and just trotted away from the well. So that's a totally apocryphal story that I'm sure did not happen at all. (laughs) Uh, I got this from this website um, called wisdomcommons.org. There's a link to it in the show notes. And really the point of this was just to Tell a little bit of a parable, if you will, of some creative problem solving, right? Ooh. And so I guess that actually does beg the question, though, was the donkey's solution creative? Yeah. So today um, we're going to be talking about creativity, which is sometimes described within the context of making something for the sake of making something, you know, like music, sculptures, painting, um, food, furniture, or it can be described in the context of solving problems as the story about the donkey kind of illustrates. Right. But what is it about all of these examples that we call them creative? You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. And how do we really kind of pin this down? So a lot of people wonder if creativity is something that's learned or if you're born with it or sort of how it comes about. Yeah. Or if people can have like a range of creativity or if it's really localized to kind of a narrow range of skills. So if they're just really good at music or something like that. Yeah. And where do these skills come from? And probably most importantly, what is it? What is creativity? It's a good place to start. Yeah. Okay. So let's begin by we're going to sort of pull from the generic definition, which is that creativity is a phenomenon in which something new and potentially somewhat valuable is created or formed in, in some way. Yeah. And the item may be intangible, such as an idea, discovery theory, joke, or it could be a physical object, you know, painting, written, poem, article, invention. And the meaning of the word is sort of comes from the etymology of the word. This is a Latin word, uh, or it comes from a Latin word, creo, which means to make. And then there are, of course, various suffixes that can go along with that, such as shun, uh, so creation, so to make in that way, creativity, creator, etc. There's a lot of different ways that can be applied to this word, but right at the root, you see the word to make or the definition to make and how that easily makes sense in the context of this discussion. Yeah. And many thinkers have attempted to define the term creativity. For example, Michael Mumford defined creativity as involving the production of novel, useful products. Right. And Robert Sternberg 
described it as, quote, something original or worthwhile, end quote. Mm -hmm. And Dr. E. Paul Torrance described creativity as, quote, a process of becoming sensitive to problems, deficiencies, gaps in knowledge, missing elements, disharmonies, as so on. Identifying the difficulty, searching for solutions, making guesses, or formulating hypotheses about the deficiencies. Testing and retesting these hypotheses, and possible modifying and retesting them. And finally, communicating the events, end quote. So that's, I think inside of the description that he gave, there's a, there's a lot of components there. It seems like he was sort of trying to describe all of the situations in which you would call some application of skills or some strategy for going about solving a problem and labeling that as creative. And so defining the aspects of creativity as something that has been investigated or theorized about at least by a lot of people. It's been discussed particularly in regards to why some people are more creative than other. And there are these, what they refer to as dominant factors, uh, which are the four P's, process, product, person, and place. Can make a little melody out of it. Process, product, product person, person, and place. place. Process, product, person, and place. <laughs> And this is all according to uh, um, someone named Mel Rhodes, who was an American educational scientist and, I guess, a creativity researcher, if you will. Yeah. And so as far as the history of the concept of creativity, there are a lot of ancient views. So most ancient cultures lacked the actual concept of creativity as far as how defining it as a process or um, phenomenon. Right, which is not to say that they weren't creative or they didn't Obviously. have the capacity <laughs> for it. Yeah, they just there wasn't a word that specifically meant that that process, as, just as you said. So in ancient Greek and Chinese and Indian cultures, they viewed art as a form of sort of discovery, if you will, not necessarily that of creation. So almost like unveiling what is available out of those types of expression, not necessarily developing that out of a, um, I guess, a place of being intentional and creative and and trying to make something new. Exactly. And the ancient Greeks didn't even have a term for create or creator. They did have a term um, for to make, but that really only applied to poetry, interestingly enough. Right. And then also Plato did not consider art to be a form of creation, but that the painter or inventor was merely imitating. This goes right back, back to, to the, the allegory. allegory. Yep. Yeah, the cave. And <laughs> essentially that they're trying to replicate a version of reality by imitating what uh, exists out in reality that we don't actually have access to, that whole thing. But, you know, that's Plato. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Plato. So, so the common argument is that the idea of creativity really originates from Western Christianity as a matter of divine inspiration. Yeah, according to historian Daniel J. Borstein, he stated that the concept of creativity was given in the book of Genesis. And so, therefore, the uh, the original idea of creativity is in that way biblical yeah and this is not creativity in the modern sense creativity in the modern sense did not really originate until the renaissance it's pretty interesting to me that that is the case but again if you don't have a term or really a concept around this and maybe view creative production as instead something uh, more akin to discovery then it does kind of make sense and in the 17th century there was a polish poet named sarbuski yeah probably um and so he ventured uh he did use this word creation to describe the uh the forming of poetry he wrote that a poet quote invents after a fashion but also that the poet creates anew end quote and he regarded creativity as this privilege of the poet and no other visual arts so he said other arts only imitate or copy but they do not create 
and this is the implication there then is that this is in this this is distinguished from other forms of making and doing artistic things yeah and that's interesting too um given so he's talking about poetry and going back to the greeks the greeks the one word that they had that um was affiliated with to make the closest thing they had to create was also to do with poetry so that's really interesting making links there you go so in the 18th century creativity appeared more often in art theory and there were these theorists uh, who took kind of different views and there um but there was some resistance to this idea of creativity and this kind of came from three sources so one was that the concept of creation from nothing was unreachable for man. So we're really looking at here a theological perspective that man can't create from nothing. The only entity that can do that would be God. So is part of the implication here then that if we try to make the case that it, what men can do is called creation, then we're sort of arbitrarily inflating the status of man to that of God. Is, do you think that's how that's the argument? Precisely. Going here? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, the idea that the perfect, you know, creation itself occurs from d- the divine rather than from the mortal. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I can sort of follow why they would have a problem with that if that's how their sort of logical assumption goes then. Yeah. And then kind of a, a second idea that was resistant, uh, that expressed resistance to the idea of creativity um, was creation as a sort of mysterious force and um, enlightenment psychology didn't really like to admit to mysteries, so to speak. Okay. So then the first part is that creation in itself is divine. And that uh, they also don't like this because calling it creation makes it divine, which uh, would be too mysterious. But they're okay with it being mysteriously divine in the first place. Is that right? Well, I think I think these are different different theories. I don't know that people that held these theories were all holding the same um, ideas gotcha. at the same time. Okay, so it might be uh, someone else's view was so. Yes. It's basically on one side, it was like it was it was not religious enough, and on the other side, it was too too religious. Yes, too mysterious. Um, and too mysterious. Yeah, that's what that's probably a better way to put it. There we go. Th- that's interesting. And uh, another thing that occurred to me too is that with the it's not necessarily just the idea that for the first argument of elevating the um, I guess humankind to the status of God, but also maybe belittling the the ability of God to be something as mundane as what, what humankind is capable of painting a picture or, you know, yeah. something like, like that. This, this magical beings creating life. You're just wiping colors on a canvas. <laughs> exactly. You know, and then, yeah. With, and then within, you know, kind of enlightenment psychology, this early psychology, which was, um, you know, using a lot of different methods, certainly, and um, deriving things from, phenomenon that we wouldn't necessarily call scientific today, you know, analysis of dreams, the, these types of things, uh, right. you know, is still attempting to create order and and find facts within um, these sort of phenomenon. So, you know, having it be so mysterious didn't really align uh, with what was kind of going on there within uh, early psychology. Final point that was uh, prominent at this time was that Artists of this age were really attached to roles, and it seemed that the idea of creation seemed to clash with their roles. So, you know, um, if you look at art from the 18th century and, you know, even centuries before, the art didn't really change, right? So kind of um, classical art has, you know, two-point perspective. Um, it's oftentimes uh, pretty realistic. You know, there's still lifes, there's landscapes, there's portraits as far as fine 
this is obviously talking about like fine visual art um yeah. and then you know but even poetry itself you know um sonnets and 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 these types of uh these types of forms of art were very prescriptive so you know you had iambic pentameter which required um 14 syllables in every single line and and a very precise rhyming pattern there were very very particular rules and so uh the idea that something like creativity could could be involved was a little counter to that yeah i mean the penchant for rules inside of art I think still very much exists. You'll have the art critics will appeal to things like rules and in terms of evaluating. And uh, I've also, you know, I've also seen that they have gone the other direction and said like, this is seems to break the rules and that's awesome. But especially with music, I definitely see the adherence to rules being something that people still cling to pretty heavily. This is one of the reasons that I like the music I listen to, which will actually not me specifically, but the uh, musical preference as a topic for conversation is an episode that we have coming up and that uh, the reason that I like the music that I like is because I feel like it doesn't necessarily follow conventional rules and I I never really listened to it a whole lot but there the whole avant-garde movement uh, did stand out to me for the same reason of like why does music have to be with an instrument couldn't all sounds be like a form of music in a way and really play play around with different ways of expressing and and doing uh, musical sort of um I guess compositions that didn't that didn't follow those conventional rules. Absolutely. So if you look at a lot of you know contemporary or um, abstract postmodernism within all kind of mediums of art, uh, you see something happen that really does go against this idea that there are very clear rules um, and very adamantly goes against that idea. Uh, so perhaps there is where really creativity kind of uh, begins to take hold, so to speak. Right. And so the, as we already said, a lot of people were not thinking about or talking about creativity in a way that was very, I guess, structured or had any formal descriptions to it until the, um, the 1950s. Um, a psychologist named J.P. Guilford, he delivered an address to the American Psychological Association that is sometimes considered the beginning of the scientific study of creativity. And, uh, and this even helped popularize the subject of creativity as something that could be talked about and discussed in such a way that um, rather than it being treated as this mythical thing or this non-existent thing, like let's figure out what's going on with this and actually have a conversation about it. Exactly. And um, beyond that, there's been research now and there continues to be research into this concept of creativity or creative behavior. And one, one individual at the forefront of this is Dr. Robert Epstein, and he began, he worked at Harvard University in the 1970s uh, and in the 1980s, and um, he was a colleague of B.F. Skinner, and he came up with the generativity theory, and uh, yeah, it really came from his research at this time. These studies are so cool. They were just so creative in how they observed and conducted these little research projects with pigeons that led to the formulation of a a cohesive theory about how creative behavior and just behavior in general was generated from moment to moment in a way that could be applied to understanding even more complex human behaviors. Yeah, and the generativity theory is now a formal theory of creative expression in individuals. So let's break down some of the, the studies that he did because, again, I just think these were so... These are so elegant in how they were designed mm. to sort of investigate this in a way that really lended itself well to ob objective criteria. 
Okay, so in some of these initial studies, pigeons were observed to behave in a variety of complex ways that are, I guess, analogous to human behavior in a way. And the first one was published in Science, the, um, the journal Science or Science Magazine has different ways of being referred to, in 1980. And Epstein and his authors observed that pigeons demonstrated this form of kind of symbolic communication. So kind of go through a little bit of the methodology of the study. The participants were these two pigeons named Jack and Jill. And they were placed great, great in, names. I know. So great. And they were placed in adjacent chambers that were separated by a clear plastic partition. So Jack would initiate each exchange by pecking a sign labeled what color? And Jill would observe Jack pecking and she would thrust her head through a curtain where she would see one of the three colors hidden from Jack's view. So the colors included red, green, or yellow. And then Jill would peck the corresponding alphabet letter on her side of the partition, R for red, G for green, Y for yellow. And then Jack would reward Jill with food by pecking the sign labeled, thank you. And this peck actually operated an automatic feeder in Jill's chamber. And then Jack finally pecked one of the three color discs on his side of the partition, which corresponded to the letter that Jill had illuminated. So Jill had told Jack and he went ahead and and um, then would peck what, what Jill had, quote, told, you know, quote, unquote, told him. And Jack's feeder then automatically operated, after which he initiated another sequence. So then this just all happened again. And then the colors behind Jill's curtain would change randomly, but each bird would still be able to quote-unquote communicate with each other accurately and the pigeons were able to communicate messages to each other using these arbitrary symbols and the random selections of alphabet letters and colors would yield about a 33 percent rate of accuracy so it sounds like they were trying to switch things up so that it wasn't that they were just doing they weren't going through just like a routine of just peck peck this key then this thing happens and then that and but they were actually having to interact with each other and um and be able to respond to whatever was the other one was doing um so again kind of clever that that showed that they were able to to navigate the situation that seemed like should be out of reach for pigeons and yet um, they could do this fairly complex task and we don't know what the pigeons are thinking you know in their head but they are able to execute on this thing when they've been taught to do so and so i think one of the arguments inside of this then is is this fundamentally different from how humans would go about solving this this problem, or at least learning to, to solve problems in the first place? So Abraham, do you want to tell us a little bit about the box and banana problem? Yes, this is a great one. I've used this one in my classes before. Um, this video is available on YouTube, and um, I'm going to put a link to, it, to this in the show notes. So Epstein and his colleagues, they did this other study where the pigeons were solving what is now regarded as a classic problem it, called the box and banana problem. Uh, this was first studied by uh, Gestalt psychologist Wolfgang Kohler in the early 1900s. In one variation of this problem, a banana was suspended out of reach of a group of chimpanzees, and then a wooden crate was also placed on the floor away from the suspended banana. So on one side of the cage or, or room that they were in, there was a banana hanging from the ceiling. They couldn't get to it. On the other side of the room, they had this box that they could climb on top of, but it was nowhere near the banana. And the chimps would attempt to jump up and fetch the banana, but they couldn't because it was too high up. And then one chimp by the name of Sultan was observed pacing back and forth between the banana and the wooden crate. And then several minutes later, he moved the crate underneath the banana, climbed on top of the crate, and was able to jump up and grab the banana. So it gave himself that extra 
extra elevation so that he could that he could reach it and get it down. Kohler really didn't offer any other explanation for Sultan's performance other than suggested that it demonstrated this insight that we normally, again, would think was really only available to human beings. And this was then demonstrated by the chimps, which is kind of cool. Now, Epstein and his colleagues essentially conducted the same experiment with pigeons. So first they gave the pigeons various types of training, and then they introduced the box and the banana experiment. So the way the training was set up, again, I just think this is so clever. The pigeons would receive food whenever they pecked a small toy banana that was within reach, usually about eye level. So it was right about the level of their head. They would peck at it and then they would get rewarded. Okay. And some pigeons were also taught to push a small box around their chamber. So they would just move it with their foot or their head or whatever. As long as they moved the box around the, the, the little chamber that they were in, then they would also get that food reward. And so, um, some pigeons learned that jumping and flying toward the hanging banana would not actually produce the reward. So just pecking at it once it was out of reach by jumping and flying at it didn't work. However, once pigeons were trained in their specific scenarios, they were confronted with this classic problem. They were trained to peck a banana and they were trained to move a box and not necessarily any relation between those two things. And then what ha and also again that they couldn't just fly at or jump at the banana and peck it. They had to, they had to be just standing there and pecking it, right? And what happened was that they put they did this classic banana and box problem that was arranged with the chimpanzees, but in this case in this time what they did is they um, they had this banana hanging from the ceiling and then they had this box over on the other side of the chamber that they were in. And what they observed was that the pigeon would kind of pace around and it would try and peck at the banana, but it was a little too far out of reach and it would kind of go over to the box and then it would go back. It was sort of doing that pacing thing that, that, ch that chimp Sultan was doing in the other experiment. And then what it did is it started pushing the box toward the banana. And this was a totally new thing for this pigeon to do to actually push that box in a specific direction for one thing. And then what they did is they climbed on top of the box and pecked at the banana. Again, taking essentially what they had learned from these three different skills and combining them into one totally new, um, I guess, strategy for solving the problem that they were in. And so the general finding was that this new behavior that emerged and it was systematically related to the training that the bird had received prior to that puzzle and that they solved the problem in what could be described as a human-like way similar to again Sultan the chimpanzee although with Sultan he wasn't given those tra that training he he was able to execute that um, without the, the specific training anyway those birds who were never taught to push the box or to climb onto the box did not exhibit these behaviors when tested that was the control group right so it wasn't just the case that if you put a bird in this cage um, that knows to, um, to, to peck at a banana, uh, that it would figure this out. Cause that you, you might make the argument, well, maybe they were in there long enough. They would just do this anyway. Like that would just figure this out. Like, um, like Sultan did, but that wasn't the case. They, they never, uh, moved the box over and, and stood on it to peck at the banana. Only the birds who had both of those skills, uh, were able to, uh, to execute this and solve the problem. So, in summary, the novel performances can be better understood when examining the particular learning history that was involved with the component skills that are involved in that the sort of larger, I guess, composite action. Super cool. So elegant, <laughs> as I you said. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you want to tackle this two-string problem together? Sure. Okay, so in 1985, Epstein introduced a formal methodology 
for analyzing, predicting, and engineering complex novel performances in animals and people. Right. Epstein showed that the behavior of people could be modified using principles from that generativity theory of Norman Meyer's two-string problem. So, in the two-string problem, a subject is shown into a room which has two long strings that are suspended from a high ceiling. Now, the experimenter points out the set of pliers that are placed on the table and instructs the subject of the task. Tie the end of these two strings together, and if necessary, you may use this object, that is the pliers, to help you. So, the subject's initial behavior is to pull one of the strings towards the other, but they soon find that the strings are so far apart that they cannot be touched simultaneously. So, the subject then typically takes the second string and attempts to bring it closer to the first. And then the subject typically repeats these behaviors several times. The subject oftentimes attempts to use the tool left behind, the pliers, to try and reach for the other string. Uh, the solution to this tricky problem is to tie the pliers to one string and then set that string in motion, such as a pendulum. The subject then moves to the second string, catches the swinging string once it swings within reach, and both strings are in hand, and then they can tie the two strings together. Epstein also showed the, the outcome when different objects were used. So when subjects were given relatively long objects that would be more likely to be used to reach for the object, um, they did not end up creating a pendulum. Uh, the subjects sometimes could not even solve the problem when those larger objects were present. Uh, but when given the shorter objects, the subjects could solve the problem relatively fast. This is sort of like an early version of an escape room. Right? Um. <laughs> <laughs> now we do it all the time. That's, That's all that right. escape rooms are. It's just these weird behavioral creative experiments. So, somewhere Epstein is, is is looking at these escape rooms and laughing. Like, and ah, being like, oh, I could have. doing I this decades ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I could have. I could have banked on this. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. No, trying to write grants I, for my research. I could have just yeah. had people paying me for escape rooms. Why didn't I turn this into a business? Um, Epstein did go uh, a step further in showing that the same principles of behavior can predict different types of performance under different types of conditions. So he instantiated this in a computer model, and the curve created in this model shows this sort of smooth transition of the five behaviors, the five actions that were needed involving a short object. So the first five behaviors, reaching for the string, pulling the strings toward one another, then tying the small object to one end of the string, swinging the string, and connecting the string. So those are the, the five steps. So this theory can be expressed as a series of equations called transformation functions and instantiated in a computer model, the equations have been proved useful in predicting these fairly complex actions moment to moment in, um, in real time in a laboratory. Neat. So going back to this uh, generativity theory again, um, the theory really does suggest that new skills and behaviors emerge as previously established strategies become interconnected and that the process of interconnection is both orderly and predictable. Exactly. The theory suggests that creative expression can be accelerated and directed in various ways, essentially by altering the number and nature of available skills that are that, that subject or that organism has. Yeah, and people can be deliberate about acquiring repertoires and arranging conditions, which leads to interesting interconnections forming. So, spoiler alert, creativity can be cultivated it can be taught yes exactly and epstein believed that this theory could help us understand how behavior is generated across an entire range of difficulty from the reappearance of an old really well established sort of pattern of skills and strategies to the occurrence of something that it seems profoundly new yeah and the theory suggests that novel behaviors 
that are often called, you know, ideas, result from an orderly and dynamic competition among previously established behaviors. And it's during this process, old behaviors blend or interconnect to create new ideas. So Epstein discusses the mystery, the supposed mystery behind this idea of creativeness in regards to the frustration or confusion before or during that episode of what you might call insight or creativity. Yeah, and the mystery factor is most likely related to really several factors, right? So for one, when behaviors are competing, the nervous system is in some sort of kind of um, sense overload. There's a lot of things going on there. And we translate this feeling into frustration and confusion. Right. And so I think just another way of saying that same exact thing is that we can only focus on so much at a time and it's easy to get distracted when we are trying, when we're doing something we don't necessarily understand how to do and are sort of looking about for any potential solution. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And because, you know, it's, we don't have, there's not like a, a thermometer on the nervous system for, oh, we've reached critical capacity. But what we can see is that when there are too many things and there are too many problems that are all sort of overlapping that you you tend to see people and organisms sort of slow down in their ability to deal with that because it's because it's hard right and another thing that he pointed out was that this process is difficult to experience and it's also equally challenging to try and analyze those behaviors while it's occurring and and analyze like the strategies that you're using in real time with respect to applying them to that problem so again you sort of get a lot that's happening, it's hard to focus on any one of those things. So these new ideas often seem to come out of nowhere, which can make it difficult to determine what was the cue, what was the preceding event and the process of that combination of skills that led to that creative solution. Yeah, and he writes that, quote, computer simulations model the interconnection process using a mathematical state system, end quote. So during each cycle of the logarithm, it is assumed that several behavioral processes are occurring simultaneously. And each behavior is assumed to be operating on the probabilities of multiple behaviors. And each behavioral process is illustrated by an equation or transformation function. So each cycle of the algorithm represents a small interval of time. At the end of each cycle and before the next cycle, the resulting probabilities are put back into the same equation. And then these changes occur in small increments, which produce these small, almost unnoticeable curves. So all of this together creates a probability profile, which is a graphical image of how a variety of behaviors are expected to change over time. And the equation uses is the names of empirically established behavior laws. So um, things that we kind of study within behavioral psychology, um, such as extinction, reinforcement, resurgence, automatic chaining, um, these terms that would be familiar to behavioral psychologists. Right. So a whole bunch of jargon for you if you don't. <laughs> if you're interested. Me. Right. Um, Epstein also developed a quote-unquote frequency profile, which plots the behavior of an individual subject. And so Epstein and his colleagues have used this model specifically to study the behavior of individuals performing on a sort of more wide variety of range of tasks. And participants are video recorded while solving problems, and eventually those videos are, are coded, which is to say that they do some... Um, some measurements, some specific measurements of the actions taken inside of those videos. And that frequency profile is created so that models can be generated from those results. And when problems are solved using the computer program, both frequency and probability profiles can then be created in real time. So essentially what the generativity theory suggests is that there are these general mechanisms that 
are really at the root of creativity and they're universal. They um, can be applied to sort of any sort of creative behavior. And that also suggests the idea that all people have the potential to be creative. Now, an important discussion inside of this is this concept of variability. And this is something that I've kind of wanted to tackle on, on the show before and haven't necessarily known how or where to put it in. But there are a couple of different ways of looking at at how we might classify and describe patterns of behavior. And one thing that is often said is that variability is the rule in behavior. That is, we rarely perform a behavior the exact same way more than once. That is that even when repeating the same sequence, for example, brushing your teeth, you don't ever do it exactly the same way. You don't, you, there will be something a little bit different every time, though even as subtle as the direction you're facing or the things that you're thinking, whatever, uh, making your way through a familiar store. Although we might not notice because these differences might be really tiny, even imperceptible, at certain levels, it is the fact that every single time that we do something, it's going to be slightly different than the way that it was done before. Epstein discusses that although this mechanism is universal, few people tend to truly express creativity. He described two principles for this reason. Right. The two principles that Epstein suggested were uh, what the first one is called socialization process. And that is that children enter preschool and kindergarten essentially full to the brim and bursting with creativity and ideas and all of these new ways to do things. But once they've entered grade school at, at this time, then they're much more discouraged from expressing new or unusual ideas. And this shift sort of means that they lose that, I guess, tendency to attempt to be creative due to those educational demands and the reaction to creativity from people who are supposed to be their teachers. Yeah, and second of all, creativity depends on a set of competencies, right? And these include skills that may predict successful creative behavior. And these competencies aren't taught in school, um, but they may be acquired by accident through, you know, modeling or mentoring or some other some other format. So Epstein outlined what he described or what he hypothesized as the four core competencies for having creative expression of action and strategy and behavior and that sort of thing. So the four of them are capturing, challenging, broadening skills and surrounding. So I'll go through the first one, which is capturing. And it, capturing is described is this is being able to preserve new ideas as they come up. So just remembering that you had that strategy, right? Finding places and times where those new ideas can be easily observed. This also involves things like daydreaming and sort of, um, I guess, fantasizing in a way, just thinking about and ruminating on these ideas that you have. Think about people who are artists who walk around with their sketch pads uh, or journalists who walk around with their uh, journals and uh, pieces of napkins. And so these people can sort of constantly stop and practice those new ideas as they come up. And to capture such ideas, it is essential to surround yourself with tools that make capturing those ideas likely to occur. Again, setting up your environment and your tools so that you have the ability to engage in that creative process as soon as the opportunity arises. So um, I know of a, a curriculum that is often used by artists, kind of a, a, a model for creative behavior called the artist's way. Have you heard about this? I have not. Oh, okay. So uh, anyone who's been an artist, you've likely run across this book called The Artist's Way, which has a really large following. And one of the components that I think really encapsulates um, Epstein's principle of capturing is you do what are called morning pages. So you wake up every morning. The first thing you do is you write freehand 
um, nonstop, three pages front and back of just whatever comes to your mind. And the idea is that you're essentially cultivating or practicing um, having a constant flow of creativity, quote unquote, coming, having inspiration, having ideas that are, are constantly forming, and you're really trying to um, work on that. And there's a lot of artists, actors, playwrights, writers, poets who um, who do that practice, and um, I think it, it very much aligns with this uh, competency that Epstein has defined. It makes perfect sense with what we know about behavior and habits and how these things are developed and sustained. And this mm-hmm. also will be something that will be relevant to a discussion we're going to have later when we do a book review about a book about habits, which I'm looking forward to a little bit down the road, but it's, it's certainly coming. So yeah, be on the lookout for that. <laughs> um, so the second competency that I've seen outlines is challenging which is essentially seeking out challenging situations. So taking on difficult tasks and putting oneself into situations where your current level of skills or knowledge will be tested uh, is important to this. Uh, You need to be able to set open-ended goals, manage fear and stress that is associated with failure effectively, as well as learn to manage failure and not to fear failure. Um, And it's, it's really important in the means of boosting creativity. And I had a, back in my theater days, I had an acting teacher who would always say, fail big. So if you're gonna, if you're going to fail, fail big. And I had another teacher who gave um, some great advice, which was anytime you're in a scene class or a monologue class or, or anything like that, to kind of go first and challenge yourself to get out there and be the first one to, to mess up. And that you actually tend to learn the most there um, because you are able to get really good feedback and you're able to, yeah, just, just um, be within that moment and, and really challenge yourself. You know, the, uh, there's something that with the kids that I work with and we're doing instruction with them and, and a lot of it's remedial trying to get them up, caught up academically, but a lot of them come in and they have been, they have such a long experience with getting in trouble for getting things wrong yes. that they they really won't even try and so there have time there have been times that we come in and we tell them like i want i want you to make mistakes mm-hmm. as a matter of fact i want you to promise me that you will make mistakes because that's the only way that we know the things that you don't know and it's the only way that we can practice working on things that you're not that good at and i was actually thinking about this just the other day in terms of you know what i'd really love to see from a political candidate is they go up and rather than say like i'm going to do everything perfectly and i'm going to i'm going to be awesome and i'm great is to say like i'm going to make mistakes and what's going to make what makes that candidate different is that they will learn from those mistakes mm. like that would be it's it, failure is not necessarily um, a bad thing it's um it is an opportunity to uh, to learn what you don't know and to improve. So I yeah. think it's I think it's it's something that, and I th- I think the culture around this has changed a lot over the last several decades. But it's it is always great to have that reminder and coming back to it. So uh, let's go on to his third competency that he mentions, which is broadening skills and knowledge. I mean, this is essentially what it sounds like. This is seeking out new training, gaining new experiences, building knowledge outside of your of your current area of expertise, just go learn a little bit about something new and expand your skill set and your repertoire, the the things that you're comfortable and competent at doing. Try and grow that a little bit. Try something a little bit new. And that's that's just the, you know, a third set that really adds to that toolbox of being creative in general. And finally, his fourth competency is called surrounding. 
And essentially what this includes is making changes to the environment, whether this is your physical environment, your social environment, those that, you know, are around you, and to really seek out unusual situations or, um, or circumstances. So, you know, this could be maybe, you know, going on a hike somewhere that you don't usually go to, traveling, you know, we, the, it, it's certainly uh, widely accepted that traveling, you know, really does expand kind of um, your, your skills and your perspectives and, and these types of things. So, you know, really seeking out different circumstances, different environments than what you're used to can help cultivate that creativity. Now there are some there are some other um, hypothesized factors that would affect the extent to which someone will have creative expression or will demonstrate creative exp expression. Um, so there is the hypothesis that this is a personality trait and therefore is not something that's trainable. Um, although, as we discussed in our personality episode, our personalities are things that we develop and cultivate over time. So in that sense, it is. But um, this was from authors Doyeg and. Ivarez and Nieto in 2008, as well as Prabhu Sutton and Saucer in 2008. Um, and then another factor that can express, or the another hypothesis about factors that can affect the expression of creativity is the work climate and the, uh, the work environment that you're in. So the variables that are under the control of managers and leaders in those organizations can limit or facilitate the expression of creative actions and creative strategies. And this comes from authors Hunter, Bedell, and Mumford in 2007. I feel like this is something that's really at the forefront of kind of the current work culture. You know, you see in tech companies them trying to kind of turn things on on their heads, so to speak, um, when it comes to work climate. Um, and this often is in, in service of facilitating creativity amongst employees. Epstein's also developed a creativity competencies for managers and teachers that are derived from these um, four core competencies that we just went over. So I'm really excited to talk about Dr. Abigail Kalkin, who, um, yeah. Dr. Epstein's great. You know, he he really conducted a lot of this basic research and um, came up with a lot of the uh, theory behind creativity uh, and, and behaviors that go along with that. Dr. Abigail, psychologist, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Dr. Abigail Kalkin has done something really interesting, I think, as far as really applying these principles and um, has taken measurement and, yeah, has just done some really, really neat stuff. So in 2017, Abigail, Dr. Abigail Kalkin published an article called Writing on Writing. And this article looked at the task of teaching writing to students through um, what's called direct instruction, uh, which I don't believe we've done an episode on yet. I think you're right. And that's funny Which, because I've presented on this yeah, multiple times this on jam. like project follow through and stuff like that. So I, that definitely, I'm glad that jam. you said that. That's going yeah. to go on, go on the docket. It's on it. So, and the subjects she used um, included elementary to high school students. The purpose of this was that there was a lack of scientific analysis and, and really good research around the topic of creativity or specifically the analysis of how these creative strategies are developed in people. So to backtrack ever so slightly, Winston and Baker in 1986 uh, were a couple of authors who reviewed 20 studies of creativity. And they stated, quote, surprisingly, the sequences of behavior involved in the process of creating are rarely, if ever, subjected to direct analysis by behavior analytic or traditional researchers, end quote. And measures of creativity in these studies consisted of things like rating scales and subjective rankings. Culkin really looked into creativity as kind of a behavioral synthesis, as a kind of serendipitous moment of apparent revelation. This was her uh, her kind of brief definition of creativity. 
And this is right in, in line with everything that Epstein was saying. And her argument essentially was that these serendipitous moments, these bursts of creativity and, and insight, they don't come along out of nowhere. They come with an accumulation of having gained experience and past knowledge in those behaviors. That was like strategy two of Epstein, as well as the combination of actually being able to practice those things, which is kind of implied in what she's talking about. And so, for example, a fisherman's net gets tangled and then the fisherman uses his knowledge um, a behavioral synthesis that we call creative thinking to untangle those nets and solve the problem that he's in. And the interaction between that that strategy that he uses and the environment that enabled the strategy by creating a problem that he had to solve, uh, and, and he brought to bear on that his knowledge and his facts and the, the things that he had done in the past that had worked for him that developed a new way of forming a solution to the problem at hand, which again is that demonstration of what we call creativity. It didn't come out of nowhere. It came because he already had some skills that he just needed to do in a different way and apply it to the situation. Yeah, and so while Calkin was consulting at Morningside Academy, uh, which is a school based in Seattle, Washington that utilizes awesome school. It's a great, great school, um, highly regarded that utilizes, you know, things like direct instruction, um, precision teaching, these types of things. She was writing a book called The Night Orion Fell, which I haven't read. I believe it's like a fantasy novel. Um, yeah, I know it's fiction. Um, and yeah. also know it's available at like all book retailers. So if, so you're, if you're interested, interested in checking it out, I also haven't read it, but it's on, it's been on my list for years. Yeah. Um, but during this time, she began counting four behaviors uh, while she was while she was writing this book, as you do, as you do, um, if you're you know a behavioral psychologist who's interested right. in the process of creativity, and yep. one of them was uh, creative writing ideas. So she would count the creative writing ideas, and you know this is kind of an inner private behavior. So how do we define and measure this behavior? What a call can do, Abraham. Well, <laughs> so she explains that creative writing idea is a quote, unique behavior that stands out or sends chills through her body, end quote. I guess what is implied by this then is that when she has that feeling of, oh, I just thought of something really great, uh, that that would be a creative writing idea. Yeah, and her thoughts and emotional reactions relating to the, the creative idea cause her to kind of turn and look and look at those. And she discusses her developing of the habit of writing everything down immediately um, when it comes to her in that sort of like aha moment. Right. And that's what's, what's really cool about this. We've talked about the, the process of habit reversal, which is actually a self, there's part of that involves self monitoring, monitoring and, and realizing when you do things, because we're, we're doing things all day long that we don't necessarily notice when they happen. And that includes things like when we think about something that's doing something and we don't always recognize when we've had a thought about something. And so what she did is trained herself to whenever she did have an idea or a thought or something like that, that that became a clear cue and it didn't just go ignored or sort of became a fleeting. Oh, that was a creative that was a good idea that I had and then it just sort of disappears and later maybe thinks, oh, I remember having a creative idea, but I don't remember what it was. Again, instead what she did is she she taught herself to recognize that those when those things happen to respond to them and don't just ignore them as most people tend to usually do. So cool. Yeah. And <laughs> so, really, really I mean, cool. yeah, it's just, it's it's that I think would be another one of those core things that could be implemented inside of um, of Epstein's suggestions, uh, maybe incorporated into one of them, like the um, the capturing maybe would be one of the, the competencies to set about. It's just that it's, it's part of this process of how we develop those habits and how we get, how we develop those skills and strategies that we can apply them. Ready to take it home? 
I am ready. So if you leave this episode with nothing else, here are some things that I think that you should remember. The first thing is that as far as we can tell, as far as anyone can tell, as far as the research and the hypotheses and the data suggest, creativity is, I don't want to say simply, but I guess maybe succinctly or cohesively, creativity is the emergence of patterns of actions or ideas that are unique enough to be distinguished as separate from past actions or ideas. So they look new, right? Yeah, yeah. And this usually means altering some pre-existing skills or combining these skills in such a way that they appear novel or distinctive. Now, this is often seen when you get highly skilled at something, going right back to Epstein's competencies, and specifically in the raw components of something. So, for example, if you learn to play all of the scales on a piano and you practice all of the finger movements and get really good at transitioning from one finger placement to the other, for example, with chords, then you can write creative and new pieces of music by applying those skills in variable ways, right? Because you are so good at all the core components of being able to move around and navigate a piano that it's not that difficult to rearrange those skills in particular ways that that sound new and different every time. There's actually a great story of an author, and I'm forgetting the name right now. It was on an NPR show, and she was one of those really prolific authors who had written dozens and dozens of romance novels, right? And the host asked her, do you ever find that it's difficult to write these stories to come up with new ideas do you run out of like at some point are you going to run out of um of stories that you could tell about romance her response i thought was so clever she said there are 88 keys on a piano do you ever run out of music to play or to Mm. create and i just thought that's a really really good answer like that's uh yeah and that's exactly what i mean by talking about this where you have those those core skills and for her that those core skills were being able to develop stories and excitement and plot twists and that sort of thing and for someone else it is being able to combine scales and chords and and that stuff to make uh songs yeah and in this way learning to make behaviors or strategies unique is a skill that will likely result in someone being described as a creative person, but this is something that you can learn to do and become good at. Right. That means that the conditions under which we call something creative or someone creative are are when that someone, that they accomplish something, be it tangible or intangible, that appears as new in general or at least new for that person. And if that is what creativity is, then everyone has the potential to be creative. So you are born with creativity. So going right back to making sure that we answered all of the questions we began with, you are born with creativity in the extent to which you are born with the capacity to do things in new ways, which is everyone, because we basically never do the same thing twice anyway. Yeah, and to answer the questions posed again at the beginning of the episode, like we said, everyone is born and you can learn to be more creative. And as creativity is developing unique patterns of action, the range is limited to the range of things you try and apply to it. Yeah. So, and that's just going back to if, if there's a question of, can you only be creative within a single domain? Like, can you, can, is someone that's creative at painting only ever going to be creative at painting? Well, yeah, as long as they don't try anything outside of painting. But again, that, that range is limited to what you actually try and apply that, uh, that to. So, um, I, I know someone that I'm fairly close to who is an artist and they do 
basically every form of art that you can do uh, that's n- that's not necessarily music. Pretty much everything else. There's you know sculpting and painting and drawing and uh, but anyway can do a whole bunch of different forms of of artistic expression and is not necessarily limited to a single medium inside of that. Yeah, and, and it's important to remember too. It comes from the context in which creativity is incentivized, demonstrated by others, and um, that that there's actually the opportunity to practice. Right. So. All that is to say, if you put in the time and effort to become good at something, then you can become creative effortlessly by applying those core competencies of that skill in new ways to new situations. And it can be with problem solving, but it can also just be to create something new, which can be fun in and of itself. And that just goes right back to that example of the piano or the fisherman or or the paintings or anything else that we talked about inside of this. Awesome. I love this topic. Yeah. (laughs) It's super this fun. is a lot of fun. I yeah. think this is uh, it's a really interesting topic, and it's one that often has a lot of myths surrounding it. So I hope that we provided a little bit more clarity and understanding how to some ways that you can understand how creativity works and and maybe demystify it just a little bit. And so um, yeah, that was that's pretty much all I had. Definitely want to say a big shout out and thank you to Britt Bowerly and um, Brit, Brittany Marie DeSanti for their work and preparation and research on this episode and uh, everything else that they do. And uh, definitely thank you to everyone for listening. And oh, one thing I did want to say, I've been meaning to, to actually add this, is that if you are enjoying the show and you do not want to give us money, that's perfectly fine. Um, if you want to, that's great too. We <laughs> certainly wouldn't turn you down. But if you did want to support the show but didn't necessarily have the funds or didn't want to for whatever reason, if you go leave us a nice review somewhere, that really helps out the algorithm for the show. It helps it show up for more people. Um, it makes it look uh, look good for all of the, the platforms on which we exist. So that is certainly appreciated. Even a few sentences as, as, or one one sentence, whatever is great. So uh, that's one way that you can uh, you can help us with the show. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. Well, I uh, that's all I had on creativity. Do you have any final other additional thoughts, Miranda? I just want to let everyone know that there are some great resources this week in the show notes. So please take a look at those if you want to learn more. Yeah, there's, there's a lot. We added a lot more than we usually do to this. So um, yeah. If you want to learn more about this, go check out some of those and you can see some of the where we got some of our information and other thing, other resources on creativity. All right. Well, this is uh, this is Abraham. And this is Miranda. And we're out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.